0: You're listening to The COVID Chronicles, a podcast from the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health. Each week, a student from the Health and Science podcasting course interviews public health experts about the COVID-19 pandemic and the important intersections with nutrition, mental health, maternal health, and more. I'm Carolyn Christ, a health and medical journalist in Georgia who co-teaches the podcasting course. I hope you'll enjoy this series as much as I did. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Global Health with Yada, where we make each episode an embodiment of the word global by taking you on an audio travel experience. On today's episode, we will be discussing the changes in the food system across the globe due to the pandemic, as well as some of the solutions to these issues. Our first segment would be a wonderful discussion with an associate professor with extensive knowledge in nutrition, which would then be followed by a wonderful journey to the wonderful country of South Africa, where we'd learn about the innovative COVID 19 food initiative of a wine farm. And lastly, we would explore the beautiful country of Ghana. So, buckle up and get ready for the journey ahead. So today I am joined with the amazing professor Ines Gonzalez, a previous associate professor at Emory University in the Global Health Department, who is now at the Indiana University Bloomington School of Public Health, continuing her research focus in epidemiology, nutrition, dietetics, and pediatrics. Um, so for me, what I was thinking whilst I was doing this podcast and choosing my topic was that I noticed that, um, of course, COVID-19 has been a traumatic um, time for a lot of people for so many different reasons. Healthcare, housing, insurance, and most importantly, nutrition have been severely affected. But today, I would like to go deeper and explore the effect on the of COVID-19 on the food system as a whole, um, not only within the United States but also on a global scale as well. Food and nutrition security has been um, threatened as a result of this pandemic, and I thought it would be important to shed light some of the prevailing issues that have come up during this pandemic. Um, so my first question for you, Professor Gonzalez, would be um, what are some of the prominent changes in nutrition that you have noticed during this pandemic?
1: Um, hi, and first, thank you for having me here. Um, and I, I am very excited to discuss this topic, which is very relevant, and sometimes it's not as present as other topics. Um, So it's great that you're discussing these. And um, it's hard to talk about changes in the nutritional status as, um, for example, you could say there's more prevalence of undernutrition or there's more prevalence, you know, obesity in such a short term. But definitely something that has been highlighted, I think, is this idea of of food security and how weak are our systems of uh, food production and food distribution are um, and how easy it is for people who are uh, like barely meeting their nutritional needs or having access to some foods how easy it is to like go into really not being able to, to meet those needs. And this can be like on both sides of the X spectrum, if you think about um, undernutrition or overnutrition, right? In some settings, um, it's about, like we were talking about maternal and child nutrition, um, maybe pregnant women or children are not getting uh, their needs met, <laughs> which was already a big problem. Um, At the other side of the spectrum, maybe foods that are available um, in other settings are high sugar, high um, fat, um, low content of fiber and micronutrients. And that complicates also uh, nutritional status of the population. And it's also a form of food insecurity.
0: You have brought up so many um, good points. And I I was also thinking, Um, based on all the observations you've made, um, throughout like the changes in COVID-19 and everything, I was wondering what do you think is going to be like the long-term effects of all these changes? I'm looking at it in the grand scheme of things, like 10 years from now or two years from now, what do you think would change in our course of
1: life? Um, I think we will see like immediate repercussions, repercussions, um, Thinking about, like, I'm sure a lot of studies will come out on, like, first this food insecurity, and then we will start seeing, like, how this affected certain vulnerable populations. Is there, uh, like, like you say, five, ten years, is there an increase in overweight and obesity? And are we, are these these disparities that we see in in, uh, malnutrition? Um, that we know that the burden is carried by, uh, by minority populations and by um, underserved populations everywhere, right? Um, so if you see um, in, in Ghana, for example, where you're now, people with low resources are probably affected by both undernutrition and overweight and obesity. Um, similarly, here in the, in the U.S., there's a lot of obesity that's associated with low uh, socioeconomic status. So all of that, like I said, I believe the pandemic is just going to broaden those disparities. And then unfortunately, I believe people who, who are like the access to foods and the, access, the price of food is going to impact especially these uh, vulnerable populations and these vulnerable groups. And it's just going to worse for, for those people so hopefully we can find a way to, to prevent that
2: yeah um,
0: that's actually a big thing um over here as well um being in like a developing nation lots of people were sort of struggling to feed their families because they lost their jobs and um so many things were happening so fast and for such a developing nation it was hard for us to like sort of um accumulate resources in order to cam- combat everything at the pace needed to be solved but luckily, we had some people who were trained abroad who were able to come down and also sort of help us in our own way. So we're able to sort of mitigate the effect of the virus. But um, hopefully things get picked up and everything gets better. <laughs> but my yeah. question would be, um, um, are there any interesting myths that you have um, come across either through the media or through, um, I don't know, maybe from friends, from family who might not be as knowledgeable in this area as you are as a a professor in this area. What interesting myths have you come across?
1: Um, I guess in nutrition, I have, like, there are always myths coming up with nutrition because people just go back to food and, and like, confer some uh, value uh, that it's not always uh, physiologically sound to, to foods. I, I don't think I have heard specifically related to the pandemic, except the only food that I know in Mexico where I'm from that at the beginning, especially people were saying that you should eat like soup, tea, um, or something hot to uh, to prevent the virus. And uh, and it wasn't. And it's, it's funny, my... Um, my mother in law was telling me, Yes, 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 yes. If you drink tea, like it, you should prevent it. And correcting these things is sometimes difficult because you're like, No, I, I don't think it will kill. But she's like, No, yes, I swear by it. Like, I haven't gotten sick. I'm drinking all this <laughs> tea. And if mean, it's not harmful, it, you just don't want them to drink tea and just go out uh, and not take other preventive measurements
0: but i I can definitely relate to that Uh, that brings me to my next question where i was talking about um what exactly do you think the media and the um other sources of like external sources that and social media all these things how do they play into these myths or these trends in nutrition because i know for me personally my mom would always get these whatsapp chats that say stop COVID-19 take this or do this or this tree or this thing or prepare this way or you know all these different and you know unverified information that isn't necessarily um going through peer review sources we're coming out into the media and we were going to have to deal with it so what would you say like what role did the public and the media and all these things
1: have on these nutrition trends yeah I think uh they definitely have a a very important role to play in a position of great responsibility, like, for example, thinking of the media specifically. Um, that's the way that people got, started getting their information. Um, we did a study with Mexican immigrants to the U.S. and we were asking, um, like, what were the sources of health information in general and what were the sources of um, uh, COVID-19 information? And for health information in general, the three main sources were the TV, um, Facebook, or social media, um, and then the, the family doctor um, was the third one. And the, the sources for, um, for COVID-19 information, uh, TV was like 58% of the people were getting the information from, from TV, or from specifically from Spanish TV channels um, and then Facebook was still like really really important, and then what you we were, were talking about like telephone apps and um, whatsapp and all of those things became important, especially during the pandemic the pandemic the pandemic um, because I think it's just a source of rapid information that you don't need to like take the time to call the family doctor or get an email from the clinic. And it's it's presented in a way that it is um, enticing and fast and interesting. And if other people are doing it and you're in the middle of this crisis where you don't know where to look at and you get a text that says like, just drink tea, it will help you. um, You get excited because there's something easy that you can do. Um, and, And so... I think there's definitely um, a concern. And also on the other side, it's an opportunity, right? Because if we as public health uh, practitioners can find ways to, to use these networks that perhaps have been underutilized before, um, I think there's there's opportunity to, to transmit health information there and to, to create to do creative content, which we're not always the best at doing that. But yeah, so I think it's definitely a challenge um, and also an opportunity to do something. Yeah, I
0: definitely like your point about um, sort of using these methods to also like for good instead of like having people who are not experts in this area, sort of exploiting these resources to sort of spread false information. If the public health officials themselves took a hold of what the narrative is, it would probably increase the amount of accurate information being sent out. And I feel like for people in low-income um, minority groups who probably are not as literate as other people from different income levels or educational backgrounds, um, these these sort of WhatsApp and Facebook and social media is like their main source of information. So sort of coming down to their level would probably be the most effective way of sort of sort of combating all this you know, false diluted information that's going on. Um, This brings me to my next question where I was talking about, um, I've seen that there's so many health disparities that have been um, highlighted throughout this pandemic, especially in the United States and also in a developing nation like mine. Um, And I just wanted to say there have been health disparities, but what sort of disparities have you come across or seen um, in the nutritional side of things um, in terms of that?
1: Yeah, that that's a great question. I think it's a it's a very interesting topic to think about. Um, we know that COVID nineteen severity and complications um, are worse among people with, especially um, with obesity or chronic disease, um, and we also we. I don't think there has been so much, like a lot of um, publicity about that, but I'm sure that on the other side of the spectrum, undernutrition is very important uh, for the immune system. And so uh, having nutrient deficiencies would also unsure a problem. So you're getting uh, people who are suffering from overweight and obesity. And like we talked about before, um, the, they have these conditions not because they want to or because they're not um, eating healthy. It's not their responsibility. These are structural issues of food access or um, like the, the work environment that they have to um, engage with or not being able to afford certain foods. Um So these structural issues then translate into them having these physiological disadvantages, which translate into they getting sick, oh, not more, but more severely, and then dying uh, more. And then it's a vicious cycle, right? Because they do not have the resources to buy food. They probably don't have good access to healthcare. Um, And then um, something that I... What about a lot is, um, I don't know if you've heard, uh, but there's been talk about, especially in Mexico, for example, but I think it's also been said in the US that if the hospitals were going to be stretched to a point where they had to decide if they were going to give like respirator to some patients or not, they would like look at the likelihood of people surviving or, or getting better. And if minority people are already at a disadvantage because they come in with worse cases because they have all these nutrition problems before, so I think um, inadvertently maybe also the health system will start discriminating against these people because they will, have, they will be less likely to survive. So it gets into these like, really, really complicated that it's very important to think about this intersection now between like nutrition, especially chronic nutrition, disease-related, chronic disease related to nutrition, and then these infectious diseases, which has been neglected for a long time, but now I think it's like at the fro- forefront. And I'm hoping that there will be uh, funding and trying to see like how is this contributing to disparities in healthcare, um, and how is this affecting uh, minority populations?
0: Yes, that that is very, very true, because especially during the beginning of the pandemic, where there were limited resources, like limited ventilators and limited, um, you know, all these PPEs, issues in supply and demand, lots of doctors had to use like their ethical sort of bind book to sort of determine, mm-hmm. who, guess what? And there's so many different factors that put certain people in different categories. So I feel like sort of taking, using something or using a determinant or a factor that they have no control over, such as income or the type of nutrition that they eat to sort of determine if they live or die was quite an extreme method of um, sort of deciphering who deter- needs immediate treatment versus who can, who is just like a burden and it's futile, you know?
1: It's just... And, and they're they're technically not deciding on socioeconomic status or nutritional status per se. But at the end, because those factors are affecting the health and the likelihood of survival of people, they are. And um, I don't think it has been discussed enough how how difficult, and this is an extreme situation, but we made decisions based on like the, the previous health uh, and the previous socioeconomic status of the of the person's often. And so considering nutrition and all of these um, structural issues behind it is is like highly relevant.
0: Mm-hmm. That, that is definitely true. This also is actually ties into my um, next question about the article. So there was an article by the Jaggers um, that talked about COVID-19 being the first communicable disease that has been directly linked to nutrition. And, and this has been like sort of an incent, incentivized people to be more health conscious about their diet. So I was thinking in the long run, could something such as COVID-19 that is sort of pushing certain people in different economic levels um, have the ability to sort of be more health conscious and buy more health foods? Would this have been a ripple, ripple effect in the future as well?
1: Um, I, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I think... I don't think that before people didn't know that being that eating healthy was good and that being obese um, could be a problem for the, their health. There's, there certainly is a thing about immediacy that that communicable diseases bring highlight right because if you get sick with COVID, it's like really quickly and it. Like it resolves very quickly and you feel sick very quickly. It's not the same thing as your obese and then you have higher risk of cancer, but maybe you get cancer in twenty years and you cannot see like the clear link. So there's definitely that is a thing that may um, contribute to improve behavior, but again, nutrition is more about. Um, the 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 wider environment and the social determinants than about personal choices or behavior so it's really really hard to control um, our behavior and nutrition so hopefully rather than from an individual perspective where people realize oh it's not good to be obese i have to be healthier so I think that can happen, but it will be—it won't be sustainable. I think, like, even if I want to eat healthier, if the food is not available, I'll just get anxious and and not be able to like maintain that and follow through. So I hope that it helps, but I hope I think in order for it to to really create a meaningful change, it will have to be through. Um, demanding structural changes and really realizing where our food comes from and where our opportunities to to eat healthier or be more active or or how do we relate with cooking and and eating and and all of that. Um, So I think it has to be through a more like structural change. Like definitely it's it's an important phenomenon um, to have this clear link between a deadly disease and um, obesity and and non-communicable diseases, Um, but in order for people to actually be able to maintain these and to create a a long-lasting change in their nutritional status, there has to be uh, a change at the policy level, um, at the community level.
0: Yeah, that is a very um good point. That's something also I was thinking about because um in the United States, I'm well aware of the fact that there has been low income communities are densely populated with food deserts. They don't have access to nutritious vegetables or you know just nutritious meals in general. They're just mainly like you know supplied with you know diabetes prone foods or high Mm cholesterol foods. And I was just wondering, like, according to such research like the Jagger research paper that we just discussed, and what Americans know and what professionals know, why is it that it's now more than ever when we actually need these nutritious um, foods, like no-income minority groups to have access to these nutritious foods in order to increase their immunity and sort of combat COVID-19 spread? Because that's where it's most prevalent according to the data that we're seeing right now. So why is it that, like, um, the government isn't, like, trying to, like, more now more than ever, sort of propel this structural change that we need in order to help everybody? Because structural change that would help everybody because at this point, it's a population health crisis and not an individual health crisis. So I'm surprised that right now they're not putting their words to action and actually making a structural change in these communities to help them also Help boost their um, immunity.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, you bring up a, a, a very important point, and it is hard to get into this topic of what the government or the broader powers that shape society are doing or thinking, and why more things are not being done in general. And I know there are strong structural forces in. This is a struggle uh, that you you get more into the field of um, global health or nutrition that we all face all the time because um, you see this crisis um, unfolding and you know that there are things that can be done and that will make things better. And the public in general, I think, only sees these things when it's like the big pandemic and the big crisis. But we get to work with these structural issues and these problems in our day-to-day. And sometimes it's frustrating and it's not clear why these things are not being implemented. And the only thing I can say is um, one step at a time and we can all try to to push for these solutions. But you're right, definitely. Like this is uh, a crisis that should... Catalyze some of this work, and um, it's not doing it right away, but perhaps and hopefully in the relatively short term, uh, like in the following years after this crisis is averted. My hope is that um, this will bring funding to these um, prevention of, of chronic disease, to improve nutrition, to improve access to, to um, healthy foods and healthy eating and that um, it will make more sense for, for people to, um, to accept and to encourage these interventions.
0: Um, yeah, definitely. So yeah, there's a
1: lot. One step at a
0: time. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> I greatly appreciate it. That brings us to the end of this um, segment of the podcast. Um, would you like to have any last minute recommendations to the public they listen to this podcast from you personally.
1: Um, well, yeah, definitely. I think my recommendation would be to really try to to look for sources of reliable information in nutrition. Think about what they're eating, and not necessarily in a scientific way of like how much, how many calories am I eating, and am I or counting calories necessarily? Which helps, but. I think something valuable is that has come up with the pandemic is this ability for people who, obviously, not people who are food insecure completely and do not have access to foods, but other people, there is more time to to cook um, and to eat at home and to be with your family, um, and that's something that we in the nutrition community have been like recommending: don't eat out, like cook. Uh, reconnect with cooking Um, and I think that's something valuable that can be recovered from these so if they have the opportunity to um, take advantage of these to cook to really think about their nutrition in a more like holistic way um, and try to enjoy time with the family uh, I think that's something that I would definitely recommend to to everyone Um, specifically for for people in the health area, I think thinking about these topics and bringing conversation bringing up conversations like the one we're having it's very important and those are issues that need to be discussed definitely. so thank you for the, the opportunity to have this conversation with Has. Been
0: right, thank very, you very, very Thank
1: interesting.
0: you so much for participating. I greatly appreciate your time and your effort. Thank you to all our listeners. I hope you enjoyed it. Hello, my lovely listeners. I hope you enjoyed our wonderful music segment. I'm going to take you to the wonderful country of South Africa, where we're going to learn about the food system at the agricultural level. Since we just listened to an academic global health perspective on the issues we're currently facing with our current food system, it was only right that I would include the perspective of a group of amazing people at the agricultural level in South Africa who are trying to be a part of the solution. To some of the problems highlighted in the previous segment. They're working very hard to ensure that the food system does not crumble under the pressure of the pandemic. I came across their initiative while watching CNN, and I just knew that I had to hear more about it. Right now, I am here with the um, Sustainability Director of Spear Farms, and I have Rizandu, who is a a project manager of um, the Sustainability Institute. Thank you so much for being here.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having us. So
0: I just wanted to start by just hoping that you could give our listeners a brief overview of um, the Sphere Food Distribution Initiative and the need for you to
2: execute this initiative for the the community. Sure. I think I'll start that. Um, perhaps a good place to start is that uh, whenever we talk about what we need to do with problems this big, we know that they never can be dealt with by individual organizations in any way. And that this always does require a collaborative to come together. And I think where we're very fortunate is that as a valley, the Landadoc Valley, and um, there are many collaborative partners who work in that space already. And as we were kind of heading into a looming lockdown Situation: A group got together and said, "You know, what are some of the things that we need to be thinking about for this community before it's too late?" And we're all in lockdown, and there's we're uncertain about what we can and can't do. And so I think that brought to the four two big issues. The one was education around COVID nineteen and food relief. So that was kind of the <clears throat> the start point of there already is some really firm, strong relationships in the valley. We're heading into a lot of uncertainty. What can we do proactively before lockdown around food relief and particularly COVID-19 education? Those were kind of, that was the initial spark. That um, that that got us all thinking in the space.
0: Yeah, I'm so happy you highlighted on COVID-19 education because it's very hard to sort of combat this virus without like having adequate information on how to contain it, how to prevent ways in which you can sort of insti- initiate or implement preventive practices during your daily life. So I'm really glad that um, in addition to the food relief, you also included um food and um, COVID-19 education initiatives. Um, so through my research, I noticed that you started out with donating just the food boxes with the actual um, non-perishable items, including bread, and um, I saw I think I saw a, a few other things in the on the website. And I noticed that you um, transitioned to actually teaching members of the community how to grow their own food at, at home. Um, can you talk about a bit about that transition um, from that?
2: Um, So I'll start, and I think, Rohanzi, definitely you should should, um, add in here. Without a doubt, you know, we took the view that there's going to be, as this extended, I think that was the issue, is that initially we were very focused on food relief and making sure that the boxes that we provided were as nutritious as possible um, and would work for the families that were getting them. And then as as this lockdown, extended lockdown, continued, we realized that there needed to be a stronger focus on self-sufficiency. And, um, you know, I, I must say, and I think this is very important, I don't think we've got it right yet. And this is potentially where Rahanzi will come in. You know, I think that with all, all good intent, you kind of start with sending out education, sending out materials Um, and really trying to encourage individual families and households to think about growing for themselves and even potentially for the broader um, community around them. But we've learned some lessons through that. So it's not simple and
3: easy. We can't go, oh, maybe we have to come in here. I think she's got some really lovely on the um, so thanks, Heidi. Um, I think just to also add on how we moved or tried to transition from just being food relief to like trying to find alternative and more sustainable and hopeful long term, you know, sustaining uh, methods. What we did is that also throughout us sending out the food relief parcels, we also Decided that we actually wanted to conduct surveys to just really understand what's happening within the community, and I think that also gave us an understanding. I think first of all, in terms of how people are feeling and how much they actually know about um, COVID and our, you know, our lockdown at the time, and uh, we also wanted to actually understand if there are oh, there is a need for an interest in uh, finding other alternative solutions uh, besides food relief. And, and I mean, there has been quite a lot of keen interest and maybe it has come from the point of uh, the fact that a lot of the the community experienced a lot of job losses and they felt very trapped and kind of grounded where they were and, and so anything that could potentially assist them could work and, and so I think this is where we also wanted to kind of um, help within that space and, and just to add to uh, how Heidi you think yeah, we tried and um, I think, yeah, there were quite a lot of uh, stepping stones um, and um, lessons learned and what thing that I think we realized and especially from, from our side is that there really needs to be a different way that we actually um, engage with the community uh, because um, I think we were in a space where because we were coming in as you know, a food relief um, and just relief in general as different organizations, there was this dependence and in, um, so we just really wanted to see how we can actually move away from that and actually come from a place that's empowering and that's, that's a space that's collaborative. And, and so this is a space that we are currently really learning and building from to say that we, we, we're fine with uh, what we're doing now just in terms of trying out different things and continuing with the food relief parcels. But then we also want to ensure that we uh, work with the community in such a way that's going to be building and really re-energizing and re-engaging them as well as well Um, excuse me yeah Yeah. that's where we are
0: I'm really um, happy that you um talked about sort of trying to move away from dependence because I feel like that's one of the um go-to sort of relief efforts that people in crisis receive like just I'm giving you this to solve your immediate problem but we tend to sort of forget about the long-term effects of the crisis you know how are they going to survive when we're not there or how long how viable cost cost wise is it going to be for me to keep on doing this forever you know I feel like moving away from that was definitely a, a good idea um, so Miss Heidi you talked about um, one conscious decision while you guys were packing the food box- boxes one of your objectives was trying to make a nutritious box so I was thinking that um, in the beginning when you were selecting these foods that we were going to be in the boxes or even now as you give people the seeds to cultivate their produce, what are the factors that you at Spear consider? Is it just the nutrition of the foods, the ease at which you can grow the food? Because I, I know that not everybody can sufficiently have the time to you know, grow certain foods. I know certain foods require different degrees of attention because my mom actually has, like, as you can see behind me, you can see a lot of plants and stuff in my house. So we always go with this back and forth where, You know, we try and grow something and then it dies or, you know, certain things don't come out the way we want it to. So I was wondering, like, was it more of nutrition or was it more about like, I want to make sure that they're able to grow something by themselves that would have the highest probability of actually working and growing and being viable?
2: Um, So, yeah, I think I'm going to I'm going to talk to the first part of your question around um the selection of what we put into the food boxes and um, on our approach. And then I think, Rans, if you can maybe do some more around just the growing, uh, you know, adding into on the vegetable side. So I think what's really important is that uh, when you look at food relief parcels, in general, you'll see a lot of similar things that are packed into parcels. And so those things allow for long shelf life. They allow for Um, If there's no proper refrigeration, you know, there are a number of different things that you take into account. And what can we send that's high in protein? What can really stretch so that I can feed a, a bigger family? And then also the one thing we learned were things like cooking methods, you know. So some things might be fantastic from a protein point of view but actually to cook them takes hours so uh, and that's hours of uh, gas or paraffin or you know so lots of things to think about and uh, and so we followed we didn't we didn't reinvent anything we kind of followed and said what are some of the things that we think should be in these Uh, food packs that are dry goods. But for us, that was the very base. That was like, this is what we, you know, we'd like to send out and be cognizant of these things. Sometimes we got feedback and we changed something. What was more important to us was what we could add on the fresh side and what we could add that was pre-cooked. So for example, right at the beginning, we just took any vegetables we could get um, from local farmers who had excess because remember all restaurants shut down So some of our local farmers had lots of produce and nowhere to sell it. And our chefs would take that and make it into um, beautiful soups because we were heading into winter. So being able to send out, you know, a big two kilogram or one kilogram frozen soup was fantastic. It would manage the distribution and it would need to be eaten, eaten that day. But still, it was a good, healthy uh, food and then the other thing was making sure that we put enough protein in so we always sent big trays of uh, fantastic pasture raised um, eggs you know really healthy fantastic full of protein eggs making sure that we had those um, and then we put into our boxes initially vegetables so besides the vegetables that were grown by Rohanzo and her team when we re- when we sourced other vegetables to add which was either, you know, from the garden or from local farmers, vegetables that can also last. That was very important to you.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, that
2: you have vegetables that aren't within a day or two going to wilt. So there were vegetables that would do that, but you wanted to have a balance where you could. So um, some of it was, you know, take what we get and let's make it work. Um but always cognizant of holding the nutrition and the longevity in the background. You say what is it around what we're sending out that
3: um, can help and last for the period Mohanza do you want to come in here on the on the veggies I think just it just to end and finish off with that is also um, I think from from our side um, in terms of growing the veggies that we added to the boxes is also we also wanted to make sure that we added enough veggies per household and so we also calculated how much veggies would be needed' Set a minimum, um, and um, to ensure that it actually is enough, and then that the families have um, the right nutritional balance. I think also and now moving into growing and all that. I think it was really um, interesting because it was also, I think, a similar process where when uh, we sent out the the seeds and seedlings back to packs, it was just um, mainly leafy greens and like whatever could grow quickly that could then also add to um, to their pot. Um, but then I think from that, we also learned that we also need to be cognizant of, you know, um, like culture because um, many different, uh, I think also here in Leindock and in Stellenbosch, we have very many different uh, people from different walks of life and then they also experience uh, food differently. And then so, uh, for example, a lot of the black community, we we eat spinach, we love spinach, but then we found out that within the line of community, which is mainly a cattle community, they they don't know how to cook spinach, they don't eat spinach, and it, it's things like that we also had to learn to then to actually recognize that some things, even though are can be healthy and nutritious and easy, easily accessible in terms of growing, um, are not necessarily part of um, the food. And, and so we had to also change um, in terms of really kind of understanding what really goes on a plate um, in, in, in the household. And so it, it was that. And then I think we also wanted to actually understand and do household checks to just see what resources they actually have in terms of do they have land, do they have um, compost and just things that are, are very basic in, in, in terms of uh, being able to grow food so that we don't just send seedlings to, to households that don't necessarily have the capacity of uh, skills or resources to really hold that. And then with that, it really helped us to understand which households uh, we would start focusing on and, and how we would then build uh, from that, just in terms of knowing where we can um, direct resources um, if needed. And, and so that um, really helped with um, with understanding how then we grow more efficiently or how we help households grow um, their own vegetable gardens um, a little bit more efficiently.
0: Yeah, I really love the fact that I sort of, changed according to what the people wanted Um, most people when they come in to implement a policy or initiative they don't really go to the field and understand what they need and there's always like seemed to be a disconnect between like the supply and you know what they actually need so i really like that like when you heard that you know some people did not know how to grow spinach you actually figured out ways to sort of combat that and make sure that even that wasn't an obstacle in your um distribution so, in addition to um, sort of the surveys that you talked about that you did, um, the nutritional aspect—did any media or scientific research that probably came out during this lockdown period about, you know, certain foods that probably boost your immunity the most during this pandemic, like for against the coronavirus or um, any of stemming of that sort—that also play a role in the type of foods that you included in the
2: box? Um, yes i think probably a lot more fear around fake news <laughs> you know, what were all the different kinds of pieces of information that were going out and and letting people know what they should or should be doing to avoid um getting the the, the coronavirus so I, I think probably that was a bigger issue when we had done the initial education around COVID-19 and what you could do, there was a lot of focus on kind of holistic wellbeing and not just food. And I think that was important because um, holistic wellbeing includes all the precautions you can take, you know, physically, how how you're keeping your system healthy. So I think there was a lot more focus on that than necessarily on what the product is that we're sending out. And therefore that's why it's healthy. That makes sense. So a lot more holistic to say, well, actually, you know, if you just keep your um, hands washed, and and we learned a lot, and and this is not something necessarily from the LinaDoc community, but a, a different community that we that we were also working in is our own staff at you know in a local um, informal environment close to Spear. They had hand sanitizers from Spear, and we also put hand sanitizers in the relief packs for the local community closer to Spear. And they, you know, they pointed out, and it was really important how important it was to them, because what would happen is that they don't have any access to water close to their homes. So they would go to collect water, and in that whole journey, come back, and then you know, need to either use that water they've just collected immediately to clean, but rather using hand sanitizer. So the importance of um, hygiene during this, during this time and access even to soap, for the first, I think, probably five weeks, we couldn't buy in bulk soap to put into the relief packs. It just wasn't available. And so, yeah. So that would be my response: is to say, you know, trying to rather avoid a lot of the the information, and even for ourselves, you know, you get information, and it all sounds incredibly real and worth something investigating. And then when you investigate, it realize that it's just you know someone's picked up on something and sending it around. So, yeah, I would say fake news played a, a big role in. I'm trying to get rid of perceptions around things and rather sticking just to the basics world health guidelines. You're making sure that if you've got those things in place, there can be um, a positive impact.
3: Um. I think just to add um, from, from our um, growing perspective, we were already growing quite uh, nutritionally dense food because our initial beneficiaries before the lockdown were um, children of the line dog And and so we realized uh, through the work that we were doing with the sustainability Institute, um, we had already like known what um, kind of nutritional needs um, the children actually need. And so, Uh, we had already been growing that and then so we just had to kind of pivot and redirect where the vegetables would go so just in terms of uh, really having to think about that i don't think that was um, a hard thing to do because we already knew that um, the the foods that we're providing was uh, were sufficient um and yeah
0: yeah that really makes it thank you so much for that yeah that Really helps understand, has understand because I know there was a lot of fake news going around during this time. Because um, even for me personally, like my mom would get a lot of these WhatsApp uh, messages about, you know, what is this, what is that, when the new remedies. So I think that yeah, filtering through that and just or just speaking to the bas- the basics is probably um, the best bet for everyone in this situ- such a situation. Um. So my next question actually is about, um, you know. Sort of, have you ever thought of expanding this um, sort of initiative to places outside of South Africa? I know you said you've learned a lot of things throughout this whole process. And um, I don't know, as you polish or as you improve, um, have you ever thought of, you know, expanding this to other places in South Africa or maybe even just sort of um, giving your idea or encouraging other people to apply this idea
3: in their communities? Well, do you want to start this one? I'll I'll speak on this one. Okay. I think one thing we realized, and I think this has been maybe the beautiful outcome of what's happened in South Africa, is that I don't think there is a need for us to really expand this in other places. Because what has happened is that there's been other organizations and just the coming together of like people um, from different walks of life to say that this is what they want in their own communities. So within, even just within um, Stellenbosch, the different areas already have these, I guess, uh, response teams or action groups. Um, and, and so I think the beauty is really seeing that we are not alone. And then I think just also encouraging and supporting all the other initiatives that are around here. I feel maybe what we can add to um, the rest of the country is just the voice and, you know, speak about our journey and lessons learned. But really, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to say that there's been quite a lot of movement just in terms from grassroots, from corporates, from um, government, from just uh, people from different sectors of society who have really come together and come to support a lot of the vulnerable communities uh, through the lockdown.
0: Yeah, that's, that's truly amazing. Um, I'm over here, currently in Ghana. I'm not sure if I said that <laughs> earlier, but over here, I haven't really seen a lot of that happening. And I, I truly wish something like that happened in the rural areas. It almost seems like there's a concentration in the city and most of the rural areas are sort of left to themselves. I mean, we did hear about, you know, buckets being sent out, you know, um, plastic buckets for hand washing being sent out. But in terms of like food system and actually helping them in that sector, little to nothing was done. And I honestly just breaks my heart. After hearing about this, I was like, wow, like, you know, this could be something I wish we did. And um, hopefully in the near future, if I reach a level where I'm able to implement certain things or initiate something like this, I definitely would uh, recommend such a system.
2: (laughs) Um. I I must say, I I, I know that we were guided by kind of two things. One is that um, we're not okay if everyone in our valley is not okay. So You can't kind of sit in a space and say, well, you know, we're managing this. We're not okay unless everyone's okay. And, uh, and, and I asked this question and I, and I used it all the time in conversations for ourselves in terms of adding and thinking about, you know, what is it that we need to be make sure, make sure we're doing? And in our team, we always ask the question, you know, is anyone going to bed hungry? And that included for us, our staff, you know, so that was our kind of guide too, was while the Sustainability Institute were doing their research in community, we were doing similar research with our staff, you know, phones, how's it going, what you're doing, and uh, is there anything you're struggling to get? And is anyone or any member in your household going to bed hungry or your neighbours? And I think to Rohanzu's point, she captured it so beautifully, was that this really was a big collective effort. Yeah. So there was an opportunity in our instance, if somebody said, well, my neighbor's going hungry, it didn't mean that they immediately formed a part of a relief program. It meant we could help refer them mm-hmm. to another relief program that was looking after that area. Yeah. So um, I think Rihanna just summed that up incredibly beautifully. This is not anything that, um, that any small group could do on their own. It was really a local, national efforts to make sure that um, collectively we look after each other
0: yeah that is amazing i cannot commend the in, all of you in south africa the collective effort um all those involved in this collective effort enough it's just so amazing so um my next question is about um the covid19 protocols that were implemented on the farm because i mean this initiative was in, was implemented during the lockdown which is probably like i would say In in the I don't know how to say like the belly of this whole COVID nineteen monster we were right in the middle of it and I'm just wondering um, even though you knew you had to you know sort of help these people in terms of um, food security and ensuring that they had that as your workers or um, as people who um, help grow these foods or help pack these foods were coming sphere to sort of help organize all of these things for the community what were some of the protocols you implemented to ensure that everybody was kept safe and especially during the hands-on demonstration of, at the garden because I read that about that in your blog that when you were teaching people how to grow the food um you have some of them come into the garden and sort of um, teach them how to grow the food at their home so I was just wondering like throughout those initiatives those phases of your initiative what COVID-19 protocols um did you implement
3: can i can I uh, start with this one? So I think first of all, um just going back to what Heidi was speaking about that um before we even implemented the protocol the, the protocols, it was really about the education and then I think one of the other things at least with my team we, uh, we realized that there was quite a lot of fear um, and uncertainty and and so it wasn't just about um educating and safety but it was also making sure that they're mentally um, in a in a good or safe Um, safe space. And and so it was also making sure that they, they feel supported, not just physically and mentally, Uh, But I mean, um, also mentally. And and so that's where we really started. So once they felt that they were supported uh, sufficiently is then that um, that we uh, made sure that we basically, yeah, we implement uh, protocols. And and so for me, that was the biggest thing is that we start with the protocols, obviously, but then we realized that there's much bigger work that needs to be done in ensuring that there's no fake news. Uh, And then there's also a support that comes in, uh, like, you know, far from just physical safety. And, and so once yeah you had the, the uh, you know the mental and psych, you know psychosocial support uh, that you bring into the space um it was easy for them to then understand that these um, are the protocols uh, that need to that need to be implemented and it was easy for them to then follow um after that um so yeah that's i think that's what i wanted to just add on on that part i don't know um if heidi wants to speak more on the, the actual protocols themselves again um we had very good
2: government guidelines that were um, put in place in all workplaces, which was important. And that was during lockdown and post. And because agriculture was operating throughout the period, it was essential that everybody um, knew and understood um, what needed to be done. But I think to Rohan's point that um, when it's just about yourself, then you might not be as committed to doing this. But when it's about keeping yourself and others safe, it's like a different mindset that says, you know, my behavior impacts your behavior and will impact your health, your wellness. Um, it makes a big difference. And so that support and understanding and why was critical. And then um, in terms of keeping people safe, you know, just again, I think it's back to basics. It's respecting each other's spaces. It's keeping distance, making sure that, you know, you're wearing a mask if you get if you're closer than a particular distance, I mean, we are working on a farm, so you also can't have somebody working with a mask all the time necessarily when there's beautiful fresh air around you. So really, agreeing, you know, that this that there's respect, because what happens is you can say to everyone, okay, everybody, we're going to be out there working in this area. You don't need to wear your masks if you're this far apart from each other, and you, you know, you're washing your hands. But then if you disrespect that and walk up to someone and talk to them and you don't have your mask on, then, you know, you're breaking that protocol. So um, I think it's really important that, uh, that there's an understanding around just what those basics are. And so you'll notice a lot of people, walking around with their masks all, I mean, obviously all the time, but, you know, maybe pulling them up and taking them down because they're walking on their own between here and a water point or something. And we try and encourage that. We've got beautiful, fresh air, you know. So if you're walking and there's no one around you and you're completely on your own and you can take that break and breathe in some lovely air, do it. So I think that's, uh, you know, making sure that we absolutely comply. and, And, but at the same time, making sure that, we are aware of how situations might differ. Yeah, that is
0: important. Yeah, respect is definitely a key component of sort of ensuring that everybody actually follows the protocols because, as you said, you can say it, but if the person doesn't respect what you're saying, it's just futile at the end of the day.
2: Or if you invade their space and you're not wearing a mask, you know, mm-hmm. then you're making it uncomfortable for them. They don't know how to respond. Yeah. Um, maybe just to add one last thing to what Rohanza said is that one of the key issues, and um, for all teams, which would have included hers, was a transport to work. So there was very limited transport available, um, and then you know people are coming on public transport at that point in time. Um, public transport was going through various transitions around um, occupancy in the taxi, whether it could be um, less or more. So I think transport was probably a very big issue um, during this time period around um, regulations. And so it was very important that we were advising our teams to check their symptoms before they come to work,
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. rather
2: before you even – And get get into any environment where you're engaging with a whole lot of people. If you're not feeling well, stay at home. That was our message, you know, always.
3: If you're not feeling well, stay at home. That is so true, Heidi. I think, yeah, transport was one of our biggest challenges. And, And I think also one of the other things on top of that was that, uh, we understand that sometimes, especially use of public transport and like the limited, um, like you really can't do much for making sure that other people kind of respect the protocol. And, and so we also kind of um, emphasized what they can do to protect themselves while they are using uh, the transport. And, and I think that was also some of the main things we really kind of um, tried encouraging to say that. You, I mean, you can't do much um, with others um, within your space, but then you can do a lot for making sure that you protect yourself while you're you're on your way and going back from work. And, and so, yeah, that was, you know, some of the things that we really had to think about because it's not just about being in the workspace. It's also, you know, being in transition um, to, to those workspaces. And in even some, some of our workers' home environments, um, we realize they might not have the luxury of space. And, and so also extending the protocols for them to um, uh, kind of showing them and teaching them how to uh, protect themselves in, in their um, home environments as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so. That's so true because we all come from different social economic backgrounds, and we may not have the luxury of implementing these protocols. Even though you know, on paper and in theory, we are advised to do so. So I'm really glad that you took all that into consideration and try to modify um, these protocols. Not necessarily modified in a bad way, but to say, okay, I may not be, You may not be able to um, socially distant in your home but I would advise that you check your symptoms before you come to work. So I I really love that. This brings us to the end of our podcast, I am so happy that you both decided to do this. I'm so, so grateful. And I'm just wondering, do you have any last words you'd like to say to our listeners about um, the Sphere initiative or the food system? Anything you'd like to say just to end?
2: Uh, I think I would like to say that we've been, we've been given a blessing in this space through all of the hardship and I don't discount the huge hardship that this has created for many. Um, but if we don't take that immediately and continue with the lessons that we've learned, <clears throat> we really are um, doing our, doing ourselves as a society a disservice. I think so many things have been questioned. We thought we, you know, it's lovely. It's kind of this, you know, what? It's like shake, shake, shake. shake. Okay, now. Nah. How can we potentially come out looking slightly different as a society so that we're not so unequal, so that we're not needing to respond in the way that we're doing now because we're solving some of the bigger issues
1: that are
3: leading us to where we find ourselves today. Sure. I think I would just like to add from a staff perspective, I think before um, this, um, people just, you know, came into work and, you know, did their jobs and that's it. But I think it's created a completely different sense of purpose because people, besides a lot of adversities that we've all gone through together, feel that they're part of something bigger. And you see that in every week that we prepare um, the food parcels for our very vulnerable community members, that there is a different way um, and you know, care in how um, all of these are prepared. I mean, sometimes it has been exhausting, but people show up because they know that it's bigger than them. And for me, that's really been the one beautiful or one of the many (laughs) very beautiful things to come out of this it's it's the spirit yeah
0: thank you so much for both doing this thank you so much for your time time. this brings us to the end of our second segment Hello, my lovely listeners. I hope you enjoyed another lovely music segment dedicated to another beautiful country. After learning from the two lovely ladies from South Africa, I have decided to take you to another country situated to the west of the African continent, my lovely country of Ghana. So far, we've gained valuable academic perspective from Dr. Inez and the agricultural perspective from Miss Heidi and Miss Ruhinzu. Now, I thought it would be best to include the perspective from a consumer in the food system. Today, I have with me here the lovely Miss Ducey Wiafe. Thank you so much for taking out the time to be with me. Can you please give our listeners a bit of an insight about yourself so they can have a better idea of you you know maybe your profession how many years you've lived in Ghana and the number of children
4: you have thank you for having me my name is Miss Lucy That I've lived in Ghana all my life I have one biological daughter and a lot of people that I take care of in my household basically I look after children I have a nursery school not far from home and i have a lovely husband as well and a nice dog <laughs> that's so
0: nice um, i love animals as well so i'm aware that in ghana there are foreign expat supermarkets and local Ghanaian supermarkets um so i was wondering do you have a preference to one over the other like do you shop at more or more over the other and can you please give our listeners insight as to why you um shop at one over the other
4: the foreign supermarkets are usually... Um, I go there when it's Christmas, when I can get all my goodies for Christmas and for baking especially. Apart from that, I'm a, a typical African woman, Ghanaian woman, that likes my indigenous food, um, palm soup, granite soup. And The best place to get all those things, the yam, the garden eggs, is actually in the market. So I prefer the market, the market to the foreign shop, as we call it in Ghana.
0: Yeah, and I'm also aware that... Um I think cost is another factor as to why you also um, shop at
4: those ones. Yes, cost is really a factor, especially on how much you get we earn in Ghana. You ha- you can't really afford to be shopping in the expat- with the expat. They earn foreign exchange and we end the local cities. So we prefer to go to our local markets where we can have all our fresh produce from the farm. The farmers bring them to the farm. If you have- there's certain days that when you go to the farm, you get it cheaper. That's when the farmers bring themselves. So it's easier and better to go there and have your variety of food. And depends on what food you want to cook that weekend. You want to have okra stew uh, with your banku, fufu and your live soup. Fresh chicken from the farm. There's so much and the spices that we use that will really help our immune system. So basically, that's yes. what I, I mean, getting things
0: as a bargain is always a better choice. So I honestly don't blame you. But yes, all those delicious meals are definitely much better um, curated organic with organic produce com- compared to like the foreign expats um grocery supplies, which have been on the ship god knows how long so as someone who predominantly shops in the local markets what were some of the significant foods like the foods that had significant increase in their prices um during the lockdown because i know you as I mean, as a mother as especially with um, lots of people in your household you didn't really have the option of opting out from going to the market so i was just wondering like what did you what foods did you notice had a significant increase in price to be honest
4: with you the lockdown was really bad for us in ghana we had no choice but to pay the exorbitant prices of the produce because they couldn't actually the lockdown means everybody had to be at home and you didn't have the produce coming from the farm to the market. So it maybe came down once a week or once in three weeks, you know, so it actually made prices go up and our stable food, like the yam, the cassava, gairi, everything really shot up hundred percent, I should say. And so we had to really manage it, uh, purchasing power buy the food you know so that's what happened it really did go uh, really affect us especially the f- things that would really help our immune system it really did go up like the oranges the fruits the contemporary there's a the spinach and and i think a lot of times so it was a dry season too so it made it worse as well so i know
0: um we in africa even though we don't have as many seasons as those abroad we still have our dry season and the wet season and that really plays into a is a really significant factor into the type of foods that are um
4: available uh, in the market yes
0: whether available in the market and you know the prices of those foods normally um i'm aware that when you know certain seasons come and these things are in abundance of course their price are cheaper but when it's like in a different season and these certain foods like those who which actually help our um, immune system during covid are um, scarce that also plays into factor and causes the increase in prices what foods were in high demand I mean, I know you mentioned that some foods increase in prices, but in general, over the course, what foods would you say were in high demand?
4: To be honest with you, um, the food that were in high in demand, were so our local uh, produce, I'll have to say their names in my dialect because I don't really know the names in foreign. So I hope you don't mind. You can check out for it later on. We have a certain um, spice called precasse. We have a certain um, a fruit called kweun susua that actually tell immune boost the immune system. There was something called Quintia, Pepe, Sobolo leaves, which I know the English name as the hibiscus leaves. And the ginger, for ginger drinks, um, you have to add it with your food. and Oranges, banana, pineapple, popo, everything that was actually good for, um, to boost our immune system, we had to really buy it. And the prices really went up
0: 100%. Yeah, that's that's good to say. I'm just going to tr- translate some of the spices mentioned by Miss Lucy. So I know you made mention of Prakase. And I'm aware that the scientific name for that is Tetrapleura. Huentia in your native language is known as the grains of salem in, in the scientific world. The in Susua that you mentioned is also known as a turkey berry. And the hibiscus leaves that you also made mention of are known at the specifically the roselle flowers um so yes i thought it would be good for our listeners to be able to google these things and also learn and find out about some of the benefits of these um spices so in your purchase of all these foods and all these spices that you knew were crucial to um protecting the boosting the immunity Of yourself as well as your family members do you wish that the government had sort of regulated the cost of these foods in any way you know just thinking about you as a mother as a a teacher um, your income level do you wish the government had intervened and prevented all these sky-rotating prices from occurring
4: it would have been nice but to be honest the COVID it sprung on us and there was no way the government could have done anything it would have been nice though but it was just one of those things that we had to stay at home, we were all locked down, we had to be in the house. So we just had to manage what we had and just be uh, buy things wisely mm. and spend wisely. Yeah. There's no way the government could have done anything. When there was lockdown, the government actually gave us um, food. He made sure that there was rice given to the needy and he did, he did that for about three weeks ongoing. And we are helping in ourselves in the neighbourhood. If you had a, a garden in your house, you had cut your plantain, you, get, you shared it among your friends. We had to help be, a, we had to just look out for our friends and neighbours, and you know, help each other. But really, I don't think at that time the government could have actually planned. But he did his best. Yeah. He's given, he gave us water, free light, um, to be able to do all those things, yeah. um, to help.
0: Yeah, I think that it's very important that you also um and mention the um efforts of the presidency, because um, even here in Ghana, I also read and learned about these efforts that he tried but yes i'm really happy that he took the initiative to sort of at least help the food system help contain the soup system help sustain it in his own way but um, this brings to my next question as a mom were you more conscious of the ingredients that you um, cooked with due to the COVID nineteen um, nutrition recommendations? Were you putting more greens and more, you know, nutritious, more nutritious stuff to sort of thinking, okay, these things might help boost the immunity of my family
4: and my Even friends. Even our president did tell us came on uh, social um television t- informing the ghanaian people the nation that we had to eat our local food as the um the wintia that i said the and the wintia is the grains of salem yes and the dawadawa which is used by our northerners that has a lot of mi- a lot of minerals it's called miracle minerals in for our body which is good for us so really cabbage garden egg pepper tomatoes we had to we had no choice but to eat all those things and that's what kept us going mm-hmm. and our wayche our kenke, pepper mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and every evening we had to actually have this leaf called the nim tree, which we had to use every evening to, to, as a tea to drink before night Okay,
0: okay. Mm. That's very interesting. So, in addition to certain things like the nymph tree that um, you guys were drinking as a tea, I also noticed that um, vitamin C was something that was heavily emphasized um, during out this lockdown. And I was just wondering, so... Did you also follow suit and also make sure that, you know, you had more fruits that were high in vitamin C, so as oranges more in your home? Did you consume, consciously consume more orange juices? Um, like, how did the vitamin C sort of demand and um, sort of recommendations by our public health officials here in Ghana also affects your demand for oranges and such other fruits, which are high
4: in vitamin C. Yes, it was definitely high in demand, and we had to, every home household had to make sure it had a lot of vitamin C. Tangerine, oranges, lime, lemon. Yeah, all
0: the citrus. all
4: the citruses. We definitely had to consume a lot more than enough, you know. So it was something that we had to. In terms of making them into juice, no, but we ate them. We had to peel them and cut them, slice them every day after lunch or supper before you go to sleep. so we did a lot with it yeah that
0: sounds very refreshing (laughs) so now that ghana has sort of left that intense period of maximum lockdown where there were all these restrictions and we couldn't leave now that we are in a more i would say calm period of this whole pandemic period i was just wondering so you going to the market now versus then during the height and the peak of the lockdown do you say that um things have gone back to normal in terms of pricing
4: the demand for stuff or do you think that things are still the same okay before i answer that question i forgot to tell you that we actually had to consume a lot of cocoa i'm sure you know that ghana is good for uh, is known for our best cocoa seeds and everything and we're told that um the the cocoa powder actually boosts our immune system so for some households we had to re- re- use it as well yes coming back to your question yes now it's better because the farmers are able to bring their produce to the market so it's cheaper and um our government has actually done a lot with the agriculture sector and uh, to, to be honest that's when I was in the market a whole tube of yam was for five cities and i was even surprised Things are really good. I mean, if it's in season, it's cheaper. But if it's not in season, then you expect it to be expensive. But I, I can bet, surely tell you that it's much, much, much better. And there are lots of produce pepper, garden eggs, tomatoes. You know, so it's, it's been better than when... Yeah. The COVID period was really That
0: good. sounds good. And I, I definitely see uh, what you mean by um, the farmers are able to now mm. bring their stuff to the markets mm. and they're able to effectively, you know, have a more um, streamlined distribution um, pathway of mm-hmm. um, distributing their stuff from all different parts of the country. Because mm-hmm. all those things actually do play a factor in the cost of the items. So I'm very glad that you emphasize that. Mm. Do you have any last minute advice or anything that you'd like to say to our listeners about the food system as a customer you know what would you advise them to do going forward or even now as a mother what have you learned um as a consumer during this lockdown period as somebody who buys food during this lockdown
4: uh, basically there's a lot we've learned we've, we've learned everyone appreciates our food our food actually has a lot of it, it helps boost our immune system so we really do appreciate it now With, instead of eating all those fried rice and the foreign food we have been already encourage every household to have their Local dishes it depends on what um, tribe that you are from. Use your spices, use your seasoning, lots of ginger, garlic. Enjoy our fresh fruits. If you can't even have the juicer, squeeze your juices. Or having all those Coca Cola fizzy drinks. To be honest, if I should go on to tell you the food that we have in Ghana is unbelievable. Please wash your hands. Social, keep your social distance when you go to the market. Wear your face masks. And when you, as soon as you get home, please wash all your produce. Keep them dry and safe, and use. Your sunlight to actually make sure they are dry
0: thank you so much for spending this time with me i truly appreciate it so that brings me to the end of this wonderful segment from a consumer of this food system during the lockdown all too soon global health with yada has come to an end I gave you guys an amazing perspective from an academic and then flew you guys out to the beautiful country of South Africa and then we finally made our last stop in the wonderful country of Ghana. I hope you learned so much from this podcast and I cannot wait to hear your reviews. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the COVID Chronicles. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, and rate it on your favorite podcasting app. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory CSHH on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, stay safe and be well.